What is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Thank you for tuning into Going West today. It is snowing outside here. Yeah, so hope you guys are ready to snuggle up and get cozy and listen to this true crime edition today. I think we said that last week about the snow, but it's actually snowing now. Like, it was just a little sprinkle last week, and now it's, like, actually snowing. Yeah, I think it it started to stick to the ground, so we got some coverage there. Yes, and today we have a winter case. It's a very, very, very devastating case that takes place right around Christmas. And speaking of Christmas, if you guys haven't already done your Christmas shopping, remember that you can get some Going West merch if you head on over to goingwestpod.com and clicking the shop tab. Yes, I wish we had some kind of Christmas sweater. We're going to work on that next year because I just... Yeah, we got to do like a Going West ugly Christmas sweater. That would be awesome. I wish we did that this year. We will do it next year, 2022, everybody. Stay tuned. All right, guys, this is episode 158 of Going West. So... Let's get into it. In December of 1989, a 22-year-old woman was doing some Christmas shopping in Connecticut when a good Samaritan helped change her flat tire. But that night, she would go missing. And on Christmas Day, her body was found in an icy pond, and her death was ruled a homicide. This is the story of Julia Ash. Ash was born on February 15, 1967, to parents Jan and Thomas Ash in Waterbury, Connecticut, alongside siblings Timothy, Lorraine, and Daniel. And it seems both Julia and Daniel were possibly named after their grandparents from Ireland, who are Thomas's parents, since they have the very same names, and both of Thomas's parents passed before their grandkids were born. So maybe that was his way of honoring them. Just a little potential fun fact. Julia's father, Thomas, worked as a meter reader, and he and Jan restored an old home in the east end of Waterbury, where they raised their four kids. And today, the city of Waterbury hosts around 100,000 people, just to give you a little idea. So Julia attended St. Mary's Grammar School until eighth grade, which is a private Catholic elementary and middle school in Waterbury. And then she headed off to Holy Cross High School, which is also a Catholic school and she graduated in 1985. And I don't know how, but while she was in high school, her older brother Daniel passed at the age of 25. So very sad, but no real details surrounding that. But I mean, it definitely makes this whole story a lot harder on the Ash family, I'm sure. So Julia was known to be an incredibly artistic young lady. She loved graphic design, drawing, photography, you name it. And that's why after graduating high school, she headed off to the University of Connecticut in Storrs, Connecticut, also known as UConn, where she studied for her arts degree in graphic design. Shortly after starting at UConn, her sister Lorraine, who was about a year younger than Julia, also began attending UConn for an art degree. 
So even though Julia was now living just an hour's drive from her hometown, at least she had her baby sister nearby. Storrs is a village just outside of the capital of Connecticut, the city of Hartford, that's known to be a good mix of urban and suburban with hip eateries and some nice hiking trails nearby. And this is where Julia called home. And we're honestly not really sure if it was hip back in 1989, but you know, now it's got some really hip places to go. During her time there, Julia was an intern at Aetna Life and Casualty Company, which is a life insurance company, and was eventually offered a full-time position there as a graphics artist. Julia also did various logos and posters for her college events, and was also known to paint and even make jewelry. She was just extremely creative as a person. And we found most of the information for this case in old newspapers, but it's still a bit tough to connect the dots on where she was living in December of 1989, when this case takes place. We do know that Julia was 22 years old at this time and actually just a couple months away from her 23rd birthday. And according to the time that she graduated high school, it seems she likely would have gotten her college degree like by the winter of 1989. But we also read in an article that she got her degree posthumously, meaning after her death. And the reason I mention this is because an article also said that at this time in December of 1989, she was living in Watertown, which is a suburb of Waterbury. Again, her hometown and an hour away from her college. So at this time, she was also engaged to a man named John DeSantis, but we're unsure how they met, though we do know they had been together for five years, so maybe they went to school together. And at this point, they were living in a four-bedroom house in Watertown together. And on December 16th, 1989, Julia Ash went to do some Christmas shopping by herself in Waterbury. That Saturday evening, Julia drove her car, which we posted a photo of on our socials, but it's only been described as a two-door car, to the Naugatuck Valley Mall in Waterbury. She first headed into Lerner's department store and then into a shop called Record Town. After this, which was after 7 p.m., she headed over to another department store called Bradley's, which is just about two miles away, where she did some more shopping. So typically with our episodes, we take you guys through the steps as if, you know, through the eyes of the investigators. But some of this is a bit complex with timing, and we do know what happened in this case, so we're just going to take you through the whole thing through the eyes of Julia and her attacker. So just after 8 p.m., Julia headed back out to her car, only to notice that she had a flat tire. And when she began to inspect it, a man in his late 20s approached her and offered to change her tire for her. It being past 8 p.m. during December, it had been dark outside for hours, and it was only 19 degrees Fahrenheit outside, so very cold. The young man was clean cut and he articulated himself well, so although he was a stranger, she accepted his offer thinking he was only trying to help. She lived just 12 minutes away, by the way, with her fiance, John, and he was at their house. But again, she didn't seem to assume the worst here, at no fault of her own. While the man was replacing her tire with the donut spare from her trunk, another man named Richard Sprague saw a man helping a young woman, Julia, with her tire, but he didn't think much of it. After the man finished with her tire, he told Julia that his own car wasn't working and he asked for a ride to a nearby gas station. Julia agreed to give him a ride, so they both got into her two-door car and began driving. So this is kind of like a, 
hey, I'm doing a favor for you. Could you do a favor for me? Yes. And she was she was so sweet. I mean, she grew up religious. She, she seemed like a, just a very kind and um, very giving person. And the type of person that saw the best in just about everyone. Exactly. So I think she's kind of like, oh, well, he helped me with my tire. I'll, I could... I could take him to the gas station. That's no big deal. I do wish we knew more about how she was feeling about this, though. If she felt pressured at all to take him or if she just did it very willingly. I I do wish we know her thought process here. But either way, as soon as they left the parking lot, the man forced her to drive a mile up the road to a secluded wooded area with a pond and a dam in Waterbury off Harper's Ferry Road. And once they arrived... He told Julia to get in the back seat, where she unfortunately wouldn't be able to escape since there weren't doors back there. So that's kind of where this two-door car thing comes into play, because she was in the back and she was essentially trapped back there. This man then proceeded to go through Julia's purse and shopping bags and stole about $350 in cash, which was from her latest paycheck that her fiancé had cashed for her the day prior. He also took some personal papers before heading into the backseat himself and raping Julia. She was just five foot one and 96 pounds, so she was very petite, and sadly, she was no match for this guy. Then he put one of Julia's gloves into her mouth before taping her mouth with fiberglass tape and then taping her hands and feet together. And by the way, he did bring this tape with him. So, I mean, I don't know what he was wearing during the attack, but somehow he was able to have like a roll of tape. So maybe he had like a big coat on or something. Right. Something like that, because he did bring it with him. After this, this guy carried Julia to the dam and dropped her down below 23 feet. She hit the base of the dam, which was covered in just one foot of water, and she actually survived this fall. Julia immediately tried to get herself up and noticed some metal wire mesh poking out from some concrete nearby, and she used its sharp edge to try and cut the tape off of her. She was able to get the tape off of her hands and cut herself in the process, and then after removing her right sneaker, she was able to get her feet undone as well. So the tape was wrapped around her entire head very tightly. It wasn't just covering her mouth, so she was not able to remove the tape and the gag from her mouth. She cut up her face pretty bad with her fingernails trying to get it off, and she actually broke one of her nails in the process. Julia decided to start climbing up the rocky dam, but the man was standing at the top and saw her attempting to do this. And with that, sadly, he made his way down to her and forced her down into the cold water where she both suffocated and drowned to death. And this is just... I mean, this is awful anyway, but it's so sad because she really fought for her life here and she didn't know that this man had such sinister plans for her. I mean, she was just trying to take him where he needed to go after he had quote unquote helped her. And she probably was thinking that she was getting free when she got her her wrists and her ankles undone and then he just sees her and kills her. It's so sad. Yeah, I know. It's like it's like a double tap situation where he just comes back to like finish off the job. It's just like a horror movie. It's just absolutely disgusting. And in fact, this man who was attacking her, by the way, had been stalking that parking lot waiting for a young woman to take him up on his offer to help after he used a valve stem remover to deflate one of their tires once he saw them walking into the department store. And this is exactly what he did to Julia. And actually, 
in the, the past day, he had tried this tactic on two other women. So the day before, which was December 15th, he was waiting in that very parking lot when a woman named Benita Casertano pulled into it and then she went into the store. And while she was inside, this man used his valve stem remover to deflate one of her tires. And when she came out and saw the flat, he approached her as well. But luckily in this very same time, one of Benita's friends passed by and offered to help her instead. So, so she took their help. Then the next day around noon, so about eight hours before Julia Ash saw her own flat tire, this man tried again in the same parking lot. He saw a woman named Susan Romaneo, I think it's pronounced, park her car and he used his valve stem remover once again to deflate her tire. When she returned, the man asked if she needed help, but she declined his offer saying that she lived close and her father could help. And when he did come to help, the the father came to help, he noticed that the valve cap was missing from her tire. So he kind of thought that was weird. So obviously right off the bat, that seems suspicious. The valve cap is missing. Um, This guy has tried to do this to a couple different women in the same parking lot. So He's definitely very predatory. Oh my God, yes. He's definitely stalking women and he's just playing this game to see who's going to take him up on his offer. And it's so scary because this, you know, this department store, he knows that women are going to be going and doing their shopping, especially around Christmas time. So he is waiting. He sees a woman come in. He says, oh, you know, she looks good enough for me. And then he goes, deflates the tire and just chills out waiting for them to come back out and then rushes to their side to help. Like the fact that he did this so many times and then sadly it finally worked on Julia is just messed up. Yeah, the the premeditation here is just unbelievable. The fact that he is so persistent in his pursuit to kidnap a woman. Exactly. After murdering 22-year-old Julia, he left her there, climbed up the dam, went to her car and stole a couple shopping bags before putting her car keys in her trunk and walking back to his own car in the Bradley's parking lot where it all began. He then drove back to the area where the dam and pond were, parked, and looked back down at the dam at Julia's lifeless body to make sure that she was really dead, before driving to his home in Naugatuck. This horrible person's name is Cedric Cobbs, a then 27-year-old ex-U.S. Army transportation specialist of five years who was working as a delivery man. He lived in an apartment in the neighboring town of Naugatuck with his friend George, where he rented a room for $300 a month, which today would be roughly around $650, about the same amount of money that he stole from Julia. The following morning, which was December 17th, Cedric left a cash rental payment of $250 on the kitchen table. So maybe he had only paid $50 of it and he was late on his payment and he was only able to make this payment because he stole Julia's hard-earned money before stealing her life. And I mean, this just gets scummier. So that same morning, Cedric headed to the mall where he returned Julia's things that she had bought the night before, which were some jeans and other items. And then he took a cash refund. So not only does he rape her and kill her, but then he steals her, her money and a bunch of stuff from her car. And then he returns these items so that he can get cash for them. Like biggest piece of shit ever. So messed up. So at this point, Julia's family was of course very worried about her. And so was her fiance. So going back to that night, 
Her fiance John waited for her just wondering where she could be. And he waited up until 2 a.m. when he called the local police department to report her missing because she had told him earlier that she was gonna be home by 10.30 p.m. And Julia had never done this before. She had never even been an hour late to coming home. So he knew that something was wrong. But days would pass and Julia's poor family and loved ones had no idea where she was, especially because, you know, her car wasn't in any of the lots where she was supposed to go shopping. Because as we know, it was in that secluded wooded area where she was killed. And it wouldn't be until Christmas Day, nine days after she disappeared, that her body would be discovered. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. Looking to save on delivery? DashPass is your door to $0 delivery fees and more on DoorDash. And right now, using code GOINGWEST24, you can get 50% off up to $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. Daphne and I use DoorDash constantly to order lunch or dinner or even groceries. And that's why we love using our DashPass 
Because it's the most affordable way to get anything in your area delivered right to your door. I mean, come on. DashPass pays for itself in two orders on average, making delivery even more worth it. And that's why we use it so often. And it also gives you special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for just $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code GOINGWEST24 to get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. My absolute favorite app is Audible, because not only do they have thousands of incredible podcasts, including ours, but they also have an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. Like from celebrity memoirs, to motivation, to business, to my favorite, mysteries and thrillers. Audible really is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment, with highly anticipated new releases that can include eerie soundscapes, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Right now, I'm listening to this unputdownable thriller fiction called Just Another Missing Person by Jillian McAllister, which I think you guys would love. To try Audible free for 30 days, visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Before we get into how Julia's body was found, we want to take you through how the investigators uncovered what really happened to her in the days leading up to this discovery. So, Cedric Cobbs was a serial rapist, and he had committed countless robberies, obviously because he's a dick. Even just days before Julia's murder, on December 13th and 15th, Cedric had raped two other women and also robbed them. And six months earlier, in June of 1989, Cedric was arrested for an attempted sexual assault as well as unlawful restraint in his town of Naugatuck. But as of December, this case was pending in the Waterbury Superior Court, and he had been freed on just $5,000 bail. Luckily for that incident, as messed up as it was, he was caught, like, in the act, so, so that's how they knew it was him. But the shitty part is that, you know, he's out on bail, so... Oh yeah, so, like, what's the point? Yeah, so basically he's just out there on the streets continuing to sexually assault women. But law enforcement was on to him. So four days after Julia's murder, on December 20th, 1989, a detective got a warrant to seize and search Cedric's car, which was a 1979 Mazda, regarding the sexual assault and robbery that happened on December 15th, five days earlier in nearby Oxford, Connecticut. And this was also the same day that he had flattened Bonita's tire in the Bradley's parking lot and tried to do to her what he had done the next day to Julia. So he he already had raped a woman that day, and then he was trying to do it again. Yeah, just this guy is so scummy. Well, actually, sorry, I don't know if the the rape that had come later that day, which I kind of assume it did, so maybe because he failed with Benita, he had to go rape someone else. Like, this guy's like, he's on it all the time. Yeah, yeah, he's always looking to sexually assault a woman. Yeah, so like you just said, when this didn't work, he sexually assaulted an Oxford housewife at gunpoint in her own home. 
And on December 13th, he had raped another 22-year-old Waterbury woman. So during the search, the detective found a valve stem cap from a car's tire, a bag with the name Lerner New York on it, which contained women's earrings and a red belt, as well as a bag that said Record Town on it, containing a cassette tape called Relaxation. And little did the detective know at the time, these items belonged to Julia Ash, the young woman in town that was still missing. But luckily, the detective logged these items into inventory. And that same day, police arrested Cedric for the crimes that he committed on December 15th, again, the day before Julia's murder. And they took him down to the Southbury police station where he was booked. And his girlfriend was there when this happened. So yeah, by the way, forgot to say this earlier, this guy has a fucking girlfriend. Jesus. So he was questioned about the assaults that occurred on December 13th and 15th. And he spoke in a very calm manner while he gave his statement to police. The next day, which was December 21st, a sergeant with the Connecticut State Police who had been a part of Cedric's arrest was telling a Waterbury detective about the whole ordeal. And this got Waterbury detectives wondering if Cedric had been at the mall on December 16th, since they know Julia had gone there the night she disappeared. And surprisingly, Cedric admitted to being at the Naugatuck Valley Mall that night. And the way this is this unravels, like the fact that, you know, these detectives that are working on Cedric's sexual assault charges are not working on Julia's case, but they're talking to the guys that are working on Julia's case and just saying, oh yeah, like casually, I, you know, we booked this guy for this. And then it's like, wait, this could be a connection. So it's so cool how these conversations occur throughout this case yeah. because this is what solved it. Yeah, and you guys will see, there's some really good police work that was done in this case. Oh, yes. So even though Cedric admitted to being at the mall that night, some lies quickly followed. That same day, Detective Neil O'Leary and Lieutenant Robert Dealey with the Waterbury PD went to question Cedric and possible connection to Julia's disappearance. And although he admitted that he was indeed at the mall that night, this is the story that he gave. He said that in the parking lot that night, he found a shopping bag from Lerner's department store along with a receipt, which he pocketed and then later for some reason put next to his bed in a box. And he decided to keep the bag which contained earrings and a cassette tape. Police wanted to get this receipt, and Cedric consented to them searching his house. And O'Leary and Dealey were able to confirm that the items Cedric noted were inventoried, as Daphne just said. Which, remember, is the learner's bag and the record town bag, those items. So Cedric then stated that after taking these items from the parking lot, he walked to his car, which allegedly wouldn't start, blacked out for a few hours, woke up in his car at 2 a.m. and then drove home in his car that suddenly just all of a sudden started. But still, Cedric was saying that he found this stuff and denied ever seeing Julia or knowing her, even though he gave this very suspicious and bizarre alibi. So they headed over to Cedric's apartment and found the receipt in the box. And they also found a Watertown Federal Credit Union envelope. And again, her fiance, John, had gone there on December 15th to cash Julia's paycheck. And this envelope had contained the cash that Cedric stole from her. And there's also some other receipts in there. So when O'Leary and Dealey saw this, they immediately remembered that John had told them that he and Julia belonged to that credit union. 
So they seized this envelope as well as a newspaper that was found under Cedric's bed covers that was open to the news story about Julia's murder. Like it was literally under his bed covers in his bed. So he's also keeping tabs on his own crime. Yes. So, I mean, obviously this looked weird because not only are you open to the story, but it's in your freaking bed. So things were really starting to click here. And the two worked towards securing a search warrant for Cedric's car and also worked to seize the Record Town shopping bag and the Learner's New York shopping bag. But while they were getting this all together, Julia's body was found. A group of teenagers were at the pond on Monday, December 25th, so Christmas Day, which was the pond where the Scoville Dam is that drains into the Mad River. And when they looked into the water, they saw her there and they contacted police. I think more specifically, they saw like her feet because her, as Heath is about to explain, her feet were kind of sticking out. So obviously this was very alarming because most of this pond was like frozen or partially frozen. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So as Daphne just said, her body was frozen there, lying face down, and her hands were spread apart. Her feet were protruding through the ice by the shore, her pants were pulled down, and the tape and glove still covered her mouth. There were signs of rape, and sperm was found inside of her as well, and her death was ruled asphyxia. Her family suffered a great loss that day, which was supposed to be a lovely holiday spent together. And now, her parents only had two surviving children out of four. Her car was at the scene as well, and that's when detectives saw the donut tire on her car and her regular front left tire in her trunk, along with a single glove, the other that wasn't inside of her mouth, and her car keys. The valve stem of the tire in the trunk was loose, and the detectives were now really connecting the dots. So the following day, they issued more search warrants for Cedric's car and his apartment where they found personal papers belonging to Julia, along with her social security card, her bank charge card, and a couple of receipts that were signed by Julia. So detectives pretty much know at this point that Cedric had something to do with Julia's murder. So the following morning, which was December 27th, 1989, at 9 a.m., Detective O'Leary and Lieutenant Dealey went to speak with him again. And Cedric stated that he did not want a lawyer and then said... I want to get this off my chest, and spent 30 minutes confessing to his crimes against 22-year-old Julia Ash. He explained to them the whole story that we told you earlier, that he went to the Bradley Shopping Center and saw Julia park in the lot and go inside, that he then walked over to her car and let the air out of her front left tire and waited for her to come back out before approaching her offering to fix it. He then explained the rest and said that he didn't plan on killing her, but since she had seen his face, he taped her hands, took off one of her gloves, put it in her mouth, taped her mouth shut, and dropped her off the dam. And then he proceeded to drown her when she didn't die from the fall as he'd imagined she would. Detectives confirmed his confession with the state of Julia's body, as well as the information at the crime scene. And with that, 
27-year-old Cedric Cobbs was arrested for her capital murder and he was held on a $1 million bond. But that was quickly raised to $1.5 million because of his crimes against other women. Yeah, the, the two rapes that had occurred on the 13th and the 15th, so one of those gave him a $200,000 bond and the other gave him $300,000. So that added together plus the $1 million is one point five. Right, so Cedric had even told police that after five years in the army, he had been dishonorably discharged for, quote, the same type of behavior. Yeah, so we can only assume that he was potentially sexually assaulting people there as well, because I don't know what else you would mean by the same type of behavior that would give you a dishonorable discharge. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking as well. So in August of 1991, so over a year and a half later, 29-year-old Cedric Cobb stood trial for Julia's murder. And during the trial, Julia's father, Thomas, was seen quietly weeping throughout, and the horrific evidence was presented regarding his daughter's extremely untimely death. Although Cedric had confessed in 1989, he actually pleaded not guilty, as his parents also sat in the courtroom in disbelief at their son's actions. His father, Raymond, rocked with his head down much of the time, while Cedric's mother, Lottie, buried her face into Raymond's shoulder. And his parents spoke, and they did try to show the human side of Cedric, hoping that this would help him avoid the death penalty, saying that he grew up with four siblings in a black family amongst predominantly white families in their neighborhood, that he had graduated high school, that he was gainfully employed, that he had a good prison record and served in the military. And his defense painted this picture as well, they said that he was secretive and a bit of a private person, but that he loved to joke around. That he was a normal child and an average student. That he was close with his dad, but not so much his mom. That he didn't abuse drugs or alcohol or ever need counseling as a child. They also mentioned that while he was in the army, he got married and fathered a son in Germany. And actually, he had only returned from Germany in 1988, so a year before killing Julia. And apparently, he was fully expecting his wife and son to join him in his old Connecticut stomping grounds once he secured an apartment and job. But his wife had no intentions of going with him and was allegedly happy to have him out of her life. And we can only wonder why. Yeah, I can only imagine. So with that, Cedric became quiet and stopped getting along with his family, and he started acting out. But as we remember, he was dishonorably discharged from the military for his inappropriate behavior. So none of this was new. Yeah, like this, totally. This wasn't, it's not like suddenly he just like went rotten. Like this guy was dishonorably discharged from the military at least a couple years prior to this. Right, he was doing this shit for a long time. And none of these things excuse the absolutely unthinkable things that he did to Julia and the other women. And his parents knew that. His mom Lottie even added, it's still hard to believe something like this could happen to us. I'm saddened by it, especially for the ashes. If I could give my life for Julia's, I would. I thought that was really nice that she said that because I always wonder what parents of murderers think because a lot of them are super defensive of their children and they're like, my child didn't do anything wrong, but at least they're like, you know, this isn't the Cedric we know, but he did a horrible thing and I wish I could make it right. But in the end, Cedric was found guilty for the murder of Julia Ash, and he was sentenced to death, becoming the first man in Connecticut history to be sent to death row by a three-judge panel. And when the verdict was read, Cedric basically showed no emotion. 
and neither did Julia's parents and sister, who sat there seemingly completely numb by all of this. And I just want to say real quickly before we move on, just how incredibly sad I am for the Ashes to have to lose two children who are so young. And the other strange part to this is that those are the two children who were likely named after Thomas's parents. So I just thought that that was kind of a weird coincidence as well. It, that is really weird. And it's sad because um, I think Julia's mom is still alive and her dad just recently passed only a few years ago. So they've both been living very long lives. And sadly, like you said, they had to lose two children when they were so, so young. So Cedric Cobb's execution date was set for November 15th, but he continued to fight against this, and he was actually re-sentenced in 2016, so 25 years into his sentencing, to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So he is still alive and no longer on death row. About a month after Julia's murder, the University of Connecticut decided to honor her life by displaying her artwork during the month of February 1990, at two of the Yukon campuses. So they had like different posters and drawings and a self-portrait of her, and they put it all up in this exhibit in the Fine Arts Building. And this was really just to remember how Julia touched the other art students and the professors with her incredible talent and beautiful personality. Julia's former roommate and friend stated, "'We will remember some of the positive, wonderful things Julia did and not just concentrate on her death. A professor explained that everyone was completely devastated by the whole experience, from learning about Julia's disappearance and following the story closely on the news, only to find that she had been brutally murdered. It just really rocked everyone who knew her. Two separate funds were established in Julia's name, one that would help buy computer equipment for graphic design students, and the other that would help showcase other art students' work all in the name of Julia Ash. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this Friday edition of Going West. And next week, we'll have two new cases for you guys to dive into. It's always so sad, you know, when we talk about Christmas cases, every case is devastating. But the fact that Julia's family had to learn about her murder on Christmas Day, it's just really, really sad. Yeah, I think that makes this case you know, extra sad in that way, just because it's a time where families should be together. Absolutely. So thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. Thanks for sharing our show. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you guys so much and hope you're having a good December. Also, if you guys want to leave us a nice review, we love reading those reviews. You don't have to, but we really appreciate them when you do. Also, like Daphne said, thank you for sharing the show. Keep continuing to share this show. Yes, Heath and I do read the Apple reviews. And uh, even though we don't do those shout outs anymore and we haven't for a while, just know that when you leave us a nice review, it means the world to us. And we, we love you guys. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. Don't be a stranger.